Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Okay, pop quiz. What is the fifth biggest economy in the world after only the United States, China, Japan, and Germany, and ahead of India, the UK, and France? Answer, the state of California, an economic juggernaut with an annual GDP of $2.7 trillion. California is at once a bellwether and leader among the states and also a perennial outlier and oddball. Some say, as California goes, so goes the country. And from that vantage point, in this episode, we will be discussing the most pressing and prominent issues on the national scene, voting rights, infrastructure, COVID, and more through the prism of the Golden State. So today, I, a happy California transplant, am joined by three of California's most prominent and experienced public officials, and they are... Dee Dee Myers, the Senior Advisor and Director of the Office of Business and Economic Development for the State of California. She was White House Press Secretary to President Clinton and later co-host of Equal Time on CNBC. She wrote the 2008 New York Times bestselling book, Why Women Should Rule the World. Dee Dee, welcome back to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Harry. Good to be here. Karen Bass, the six-term representative for California's 37th Congressional District, covering areas south and west of downtown LA. She served as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus in 2019 and 2020. Before joining Congress, she was speaker of the California State Assembly. Congresswoman Bass, thank you so much for joining Talking Feds. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And we're really honored to welcome Senator Alex Padilla, California's junior U.S. Senator. He serves as chair of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration, Citizenship, and Border Safety. He was California Secretary of State from 2015 to 2021. So everyone here had important positions in state government as well as the senator and congresswoman in federal government. Senator, we're really honored to welcome you to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. I must have arrived. This is my inaugural Talking Feds. Hopefully there, it's the first of many. There you go. All right, we're with you. So let's begin with a development that's been an unpleasant surprise for many in the state, which is COVID seems to be coming back. The state got clobbered last winter, then saw remarkably low case numbers in the spring, but that trajectory is turning back up. CDC has just advised that we're supposed to mask up now in public, where transmission is considered substantial or high. That is more than 90% of California's population. Could we start with you, Senator? Do you think California is gonna take the advice and do you anticipate seeing a lot of resistance from the public if it does? Yeah, look, I, I do think California will take the advice and knowing Governor Newsom the way I do, state of California will potentially exceed what the recommendation is from 
the CDC with the tremendous public health experts advising the governor, not just statewide, but county by county, region by region in California. A couple of things. Number one, we've known since the beginning of the pandemic that communities of color and other vulnerable populations are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Potential exposure, health impacts, if you get it, those sorts of things. And just another reminder of how we wish we would have acted much more aggressively nationally earlier on in the pandemic to not be where we are. Another thing that we learned early on in the pandemic is that it was a race. Yes, vaccines were developed in nearly record time, but it was going to be a race between vaccine administration and variant. And in some parts of the country, many parts of California, we've done a great job of reaching significant vaccination levels among the population. You still have those pockets that are more resistant for a number of reasons. The vaccination levels aren't what they are. And lo and behold, we have this Delta variant that is wreaking havoc once again. And there's chatter, frankly, of not just a gamma variant, but a lambda variant. Anybody who knows the Greek alphabet knows Everyone's got to go back to their More than Greek, a few right? letters between Delta and lambda. Yeah. So we're not out of the woods yet. So let's focus a little on the vaccine levels. The pockets are pretty big pockets. Congresswoman, only 60% of Californians have received at least one dose. 40% none at all. And now with the return of the Greek alphabet here, how forceful an approach do businesses and the government need to take at this point? We know what a bitter dispute it's engendering in states around the country. We've still got a pretty big chunk of unvaccinated folks here. Oh, we absolutely do. And you know what? I think that multiple strategies are needed in some neighborhoods, for example. I think door-to-door conversations with people. I met, by the way, a couple of weeks ago with a group of street workers who essentially are going door-to-door to educate folks about the vaccine to dispel some of the misinformation that people have gotten out. So I think we have to use a grassroots approach But also, I think certain businesses are going to have to decide whether or not they make vaccines mandatory. We need to normalize this vaccine. I don't know why we have elevated it to be such a mystery. People are mandated to take vaccines when you travel. You have that yellow card with your passport that details the vaccines. Your kids are required to have vaccines when they go to school, when you reach a certain age, you have a pneumonia vaccine or a flu vaccine. For some reason, we are making this vaccine out to be something mysterious. And if you think about it, I can't think of a vaccine, a new vaccine, where you have hundreds of millions of people that have already taken it and have not had any serious problems or side effects. So I think we have to use multiple strategies even mandating it in some places, and that's an employer's decision, and looking at grassroots door-to-door conversations. 99% of all the fatalities now are coming from unvaccinated people, and it really is perplexing and somehow connected to the whole Trump wars, it seems to me. The biggest flack I've ever drawn, I think, in my life on Twitter is when I happened to say maybe vaccine passports are a good idea. And there were hundreds of people coming out with machine guns, it seemed. Didi, let me ask you in your role with the state as economic coordinator, LA now has a mask requirement reinstituted, San Diego may. Hopefully we won't be adding appreciably to the 64,000 California deaths. But what will the impact on the economy be, do you think, if we return to a sort of semi 
hunkered down posture statewide? A couple of things. The California Department of Public Health joined CDC yesterday in issuing a statewide recommendation, not a requirement, but a recommendation. And obviously that's in response both to the CDC's guidance, but also to what we're seeing across California. And as Harry, I think you pointed out, most people already live in counties with transmission rates that would be considered high. And so we need those mask interventions to slow the spread. We know that even people who've been vaccinated may be asymptomatic, but they can still spread the disease. And it's confusing to people, right? They go, well, if I'm vaccinated, why do I have to wear a mask? Well, the answer is keep yourself, your family, and your community safe. And so hopefully the mask recommendations in some places requirements won't have a huge impact on our economic recovery. In fact, the whole idea is to get ahead of the spread so that we don't have to take any more draconian steps. Right now, the governor's not considering it. We're not looking at it. You know, there are many pieces of good news in, in the vaccine rates. And as you point out, they're, they're not as high as we'd like them to be, but California continues to have one of the highest vaccination uptake rates in the country among eligible Californians, which doesn't include people who have health reasons or children under 12 and some other populations. We're at 75% of Californians have gotten at least one shot of eligible adults. So that's encouraging, but it's not enough. In addition to giving people guidance about masks, as you saw this week, Governor Newsom is requiring that state employees get vaccinated or submit to testing once or twice a week, depending, in order to go back into the workplace. And he's also requiring that of healthcare workers in both public and private settings. And we've called on our business community around the state to do the same where practicable to require their employees to do more than a test to vaccination, but to show proof. And if they don't want to show proof or don't get vaccinated, they have to get tested regularly and wear masks. Or in some instances, employers are saying you can't come back into the office. We've seen Google and Facebook and Netflix and some of our big companies really stepping out and saying we need to keep our workplaces safe. With very limited exceptions, you have to be vaccinated. And we're hoping that more and more employers will take that up voluntarily and that the requirement that will become less convenient for people who are unvaccinated but can get vaccinated, and that will encourage them to take that step. And as both Congresswoman and Senator pointed out, there are disproportionate numbers of people unvaccinated in some of our communities of color and those most impacted by the pandemic. So we are reaching out through community-based organizations and others to try to get uptake, but we need to, we can't stop focusing on getting more people vaccinated. That's the only path through. We know that the vaccine is safe. It's available. It's free. It's a very easy thing to do. And so that's the strategy rather than looking at other way to protect the economy, make sure we don't have to go back. Got it. You know, I can say I saw a map, actually, interestingly, that was color-coded with intensity or numbers of unvaccinated. And really, is, the pockets seem really very strong. Um, all right. I wanted to just touch on this because it's now burgeoning. Maybe it will continue to explode and we'll consider it in future weeks. But I wanted to get everyone's initial thoughts on it. All right. Let's move to infrastructure and it being California, a real particular focus on climate change. So that was the big action in D.C. this week on the infrastructure bill with strong bipartisan support. The Senate voted just to take up, but that's a huge breakthrough for where we've been. A $1 trillion infrastructure deal, not the $3.5 trillion that the Democrat loan version has, but large by any measure, Huge resources for roads, bridges, public transit, broadband. I wanted to start with you, Senator, however, because you touted it and definitely gave it its due, but pivoted pretty quickly to say our work continues. Now we must invest in immigration, 
bold climate action, and the care economy. So I take it you see this the $1 trillion bill as having some significant gaps that you won't be satisfied with a mere trillion, as it were, if it doesn't address those, yes? What's the sort of plan for getting at them? Absolutely. Look, there's a lot to celebrate in this bipartisan bill. But if we're looking at the needs of our country, the needs of working families across the country, and how we ensure prosperity for the decades ahead, it's incomplete. Uh, And so therefore, yes, we're supportive of the bipartisan bill, but Senate Democrats have been clear, more is needed. And so we laid it out, not just investing in infrastructure to address some deferred maintenance issues, roads and bridges and you know tunnels are important, but we need to look at water infrastructure, the resiliency of the electrical grid, tackle climate change, all the essential workers that we have formally recognized through the COVID-19 pandemic. More than 5 million government-recognized essential workers are not just immigrants, they're undocumented immigrants. And so if they've been essential to the economy, in my opinion, long before the pandemic, formally recognized during the pandemic, they're going to be essential going forward. And they have earned through their service, through their sacrifice, security and the pathway to citizenship. So immigration reform is indeed part of our infrastructure needs. And of course, the greater care economy for all the folks who have questioned or even criticized why include things like child care and a child care tax credit in the infrastructure package. It's real simple. As a parent of three, really tough for parents to go back to work if there's not a safe, quality place to leave your kids when they're not in school. So this is all through the lens of positioning American families and our physical infrastructure to prosper in the decades ahead. That's why it's called the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. So yay for bipartisanship. More is needed. We have the plan. Both will get done. All right. Well, and with a note of real confidence, let me just ask the sort of strategy and, if you will, the timing on that when you know the other part of it is a 3.5 trillion dollar bill that does fill in many of these holes how do you see it playing out and when do you see it playing out great a lot of steps still we're not we're not at the at it's the finish actually, line a lot yet. of the details seem to be being added in every week in committee yeah yeah, the uh, representative Bass and I, having been former state legislators, right. we're not unfamiliar with things continuing to evolve until the final work product is finally passed. Right. No strangers to that. Yesterday was a big deal for uh, 67 senators to vote to move forward with the process of this bipartisan package. Not a bare minimum, 60, not 61. It wasn't by the skin of our teeth. It was pretty significant bipartisan yeah. support. So while the final details are in language is being hammered out for the bipartisan package, It's clear and has been clear for some time now that it's going to be this uh, two-bill package, the bipartisan package, the Democrats alone package. In the next uh, week or two, we'll take the first steps to adopt a budget resolution. Not to get too technical here, but that initiates the reconciliation process. Right, but there's a way for the big one, just so people know, to be passed without having huge support. Is that the notion? Exactly. The all-important Senate parliamentarian has already given the green light for this. So we tee up the process in maybe next week, early August sometime, finalize the language of the Democrats only deal, all the legalese that goes into the legislation, and have that formally ultimately adopted in maybe mid-September. Hopefully the House will be able to concur soon thereafter and get into the reconciliation process. Right, but there's a way for the big one, just so people know, to be passed without having huge support. Is that the notion? You're the director of the governor's office of business. California has the, I think, fifth 
biggest economy in the world. So the and the deal would clearly have a huge impact. So the senators identified the really important first steps in this trillion dollar bill, but insisting on the follow through in the bigger one. Are you satisfied at this point? And if it does pass, let's focus on the trillion. If you can separate it out, the big and the hugongous. If it does pass, how should we expect the bills to impact California in particular? Yeah, first, it's such a welcome sea change to have a partner in the federal government, full stop. You know, and we've seen some of the recovery packages that have already passed that have been so helpful to California and that the governor and the legislature have been able to invest in economic recovery and in our people to not only get through the pandemic-induced recession, but to create a prosperous economy going forward that will lift everybody. So that's number one. So thank you to our representatives in Washington, Senator Padilla, Representative Bass, because that work has been so important. And we're thrilled to have you there fighting for the values and the needs of, of the people of California. The hard infrastructure, whatever we're calling the first bill up, the bipartisan bill, obviously will provide great benefits for California, for the roads, bridges, and tunnels, as Senator Padilla was saying that are key that undergird right our economic prosperity. Before the pandemic, we had the fastest growing economy in the country. We had saw a decade of tremendous economic growth following the recession at the end of the aughts, and that was continuing. We expect that'll come up again. But in order to invest in that, we need that infrastructure study. But we also need what's in the second bill, and we're excited to see where that comes out and know that you all will be fighting for California in that process. We've already invested in California, a lot of money in things like child care or in broadband for everybody. And that's the kind of infrastructure in our eyes, because one of the things we learned in the pandemic was that broadband is not just a luxury, it's an economic necessity, it's an education mm-hmm. necessity, it's a health necessity. Telemedicine really benefited just so many people. So those are the kinds of investments that can change lives and provide the economic engine for growth. So we're very excited about it. And then we're just continuing to invest in our people. As you've seen, you know, we've been able to do that again because we had an unexpected budget surplus in California. This is something we need to do, not just in the fat years, but also in all years. So thank you for your efforts on that, Senator and Congresswoman. You know, California and the country have had really robust, surprisingly so economic news in just the last few days. Congresswoman, I wanted to follow up on Didi's reference to the values and needs of Californians, because at least the trillion dollar bill, you could say is a little bit thin on climate change provisions. And in California in particular, it seems that's not a luxury, but a need. Over the past decade, we've had severe droughts, fires, heat waves. You know, we're in the vanguard of the apocalyptic future if climate change is not really addressed. So should the mantra, which some have taken up, no climate, no deal, be a fixed star for California legislators, do you think? In regard to passage of the federal legislation, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think, first of all, again, we don't know over on the House side all of the details about what the Senate is debating what the bipartisan deal agreed to. We know top lines, and I just have to congratulate the senator because that's just no small matter (laughs) that you had that vote. And I think that everybody in the Senate should be very proud of that, and we certainly are of, of our senators. But the bill does still have to come to the House. 
And so I'm sure that there will be some changes that will be made. But I think it's really important to never draw that hard line in the sand. And then I think we just need to stop for a second, because just think, a year ago, we couldn't have even talked about climate change because it didn't exist. And you know that we had over the last four years of that past administration, we had infrastructure week. I don't know how many times and nothing was ever produced. And so I think we have come a long way. And to have an administration that one of the first acts is to get us back in the Paris Accord and to put climate change front and center of the administration. So I think that we have an awful lot to work with. And I'm confident that it will be when it is on his desk and signed, it will absolutely include many different aspects of climate change. I, 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 let me just add here, yes. you know, completely agree after four years of infrastructure week, it is time to vote. <laughs> it is time to get this done. And I'm very confident once the bipartisan package is done and the reconciliation package is done, people will be amazed at how much we are doing, not just by dollar figures, but through policy. Right. We're on the verge of we're talking New Deal type actions and investments by Congress. You look at transportation, not just for infrastructure's sake, but investing in transit in a way that hasn't been done before. We know that has climate benefits when people are out of their cars and on convenient state of the art public transit systems. There's flooding for upgrading and modernizing the electrical grid, not just from reliability and a resiliency standpoint, but from an efficiency standpoint, being more efficient with our electrons, reducing emissions in one of the largest contributing sectors to climate change. One of the elements that I'm particularly proud of, a down payment on the conversion of diesel school buses mm. to zero emission buses. The technology exists. It is proven more than 90% of bus fleets in America are school buses. More than 90% of those buses are diesel. And we know who disproportionately rides those school buses. It's uh, urban students of color. I used to be one of them. I still remember what that exhaust smells like. And it's also for rural areas. Imagine that believing in science, climate change is real, and relying on data to inform public policy. We're going to make some huge strides here. With respect to climate change, California stands ready, willing, and able to share what we've learned in leading the country in a lot of climate-related decisions from committing to all new zero-emissions vehicle cars by 2035 to transitioning the grid to all of the things that California has done, again, to lead the country. And we are ready, willing, and able to work with the federal government and the rest of the country to share what we've learned. And I just want to follow on what the senator had to say, because it is a remarkable New Deal level record, except in the New Deal, there were swollen majorities of Democrats in both houses. And this has been done with a razor thin 50 votes. It's really quite a set of achievements for what are we, eight months in or not quite? All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, 
but wine canisors have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor. Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass, but if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well-suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans, but bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine in a box. All right, last issue I wanted to tackle today. Many would argue, I think I'd be among them, that voting rights is the most important issue on the national agenda. Both you, Senator, and you, Congresswoman, have emphasized the passage of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Got to be a national priority. But the weeks are ticking by, the status quo remains, and there's a feeling that the prospects for meaningful federal legislation may be ebbing. Is there any tangible prospect for the stalemate to break? And do the Democrats in the Congress have to be thinking about a plan B at some point? Yeah, well, look, I think the single biggest reason why we haven't advanced these voting reforms, election reforms through the Senate is the F word, the filibuster. Right. And as we seek to advance the For the People Act, or at least the, the most significant provisions of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, will continue to try to appeal to the, the consciences of our Republican colleagues, see if we can line up those 60 votes necessary, but we can't put all of our eggs in that basket. I do think the pressure is increasing on either eliminating the filibuster or at a minimum reforming the filibuster, whether it's through a sort of a democracy carve out or something to allow this to go forward. I speak not just as a member of the United States Senate today, but as California's former Secretary of State, where we built the most inclusive and the largest diverse democracy of any state in the nation. You know, multiple ways to register to vote, easy to stay registered to vote, not be kicked off the voter rolls, multiple ways to actually cast your ballot. We had record registration, record turnout, next to no issues in last year's election despite the COVID-19 pandemic. So we know the playbook. We just uh, have to ensure that every voter in America can have the same, not just fundamental right to vote, but access to the ballot. Didi, I saw you shaking your head through the senator's discussion. And was that as kind of a informed citizen as a you know California official? Here, of course, there's no real risk of the kinds of there's neither the razor-thin majorities nor the tangible risk of repressive legislation. Where's California's interest here, or is it just the same interest that any U.S. citizen has? Yeah, look, no, California has always been committed, as Senator Padilla, our not-so-long-ago Secretary of State, who was such a great leader on this issue, and it, one of the many things that made him the perfect choice to be in the United States Senate now, representing California uh, and representing America in trying to continue to pursue those values. As uh, Senator Padilla said, we had record uh, in the 2020 election despite the pandemic because of all of the 
reasons he stated. It's easy to register. It's easy to stay registered. There's multiple ways to vote, including universal vote by mail. Every registered voter in California was sent a ballot. And guess what? We had record voting. Um, so when you make it easy to vote, when you make it make it easier for people to understand what they need to do, they will do it. And we would love it here in California to see the rest of the country adopt similar measures. Congresswoman, civil rights groups appear to be getting a little impatient, it seems to me, and they're upping the pressure on the Biden administration to push, especially on the filibuster. How would you grade the performance of the administration on voting rights at this point? I am frustrated as well. I want to see something done. And I think there was some other good news out of the Senate yesterday that we're all waiting to see what the potential might be for a deal on voting rights. But I'm very concerned about the filibuster too. And I'm concerned about the filibuster because we do have a majority in the Senate, but we have a number of bills that have passed out of the House that have been languishing over in the Senate today, even though we're in charge because of the filibuster. The other thing is, and I don't know how my uh, Senator feels about this, but the way Mitch McConnell makes a commitment at the beginning of an administration to make sure that it fails, like he did with Obama and he has done with Biden, I believe that if we do not maintain the majority, I can't imagine if McConnell got the gavel back tomorrow that he would not end the filibuster on day one. And so I am very concerned that we deliver for the American people because we got everybody to get out in record numbers. And I don't know how we maintain the majority if people do not have the right to vote. You know, I serve in the Foreign Affairs Committee and we run around the world preaching about the closing of democratic space when administrations make it difficult to uh, work or to vote, our governments do. And here we are in the United States a year after John Lewis passed away and devoted his life to voting rights. And here we are still fighting for the right to vote that to me, that voting rights is the existential threat to our democracy and to this administration's ability to be successful. So I think it should go. And I didn't feel that way at the beginning of of this administration, but what we are seeing out of the Senate, and uh, I think that we have to take some drastic measures. And by the way, I should point out, look, everyone's focused, of course, on the big Democrat-Republican battle in 2022 over the Congress. But these issues really play out at the local, municipal, school board levels, too. You don't want people on on either side being selectively either disenfranchised or disincentivized from voting. Let's stick with California for a minute because we have, you know, as is often the case, it's a possible example for the country. There's a provision in H.R. 1 that California, in fact, adopted in 2019, which is we our redistricting model was changed to outlaw partisan gerrymandering, and it's now controlled by an independent commission. Are there lessons that can be drawn from the experience we've had so far with an independent commission model? Yeah, imagine that, insisting on a fair redistricting process, the one that respects the voting rights and historically disenfranchised communities. 
So I know that uh, the concept of very districting, independent redistricting has uh, gained some momentum in you know states across the country now, not the majority yet, but several other states have moved towards a similar commission independent structure. And we also know the flip side of it. We know how redistricting has been exploited and abused for partisan advantage. And so that's why it's also a critical element of the For the People Act. States like California, uh, Michigan, and others that uh, have adopted the independent process are showing that it's not just a good idea, but it can be done. There is a benefit supported by the American people that we hope to bring those protections to states across the country. And let me just also say this. 2022 is going to be the perfect storm year. We're fighting for a baseline of voting rights and access to the ballot for voters across the country in time to help in the 2022 elections, which will be conducted under the new maps that are drawn, either through a fair redistricting process or maybe an unfair redistricting process, depending on what we're able to do in Congress as we speak. And even that redistricting process is driven by the census data of 2020, which was subject to attack after attack by the Trump administration. So we don't know the final numbers yet. We're hoping they're quality enough. That coupled with a fair redistricting process gives voters a fair shake in the 2022 midterms. Didi, any last thoughts here? No, I just second uh, what the senator said. You know, having a nonpartisan, transparent, collaborative process where the you know congressional districts are drawn, district lines are drawn through that process, which includes, by the way, input from communities. Communities have an opportunity to go to testify in front of the commission to make their views known, and the end result is just a def- definitely a more inclusive, more representative, and fairer outcome. So uh, it would be great to see more states across the country do something similar. And I'll just add another legal point here, which is the Supreme Court has remarkably said that has nothing to to add or it can in no way help even the most egregious gerrymandering. So it's really been left to the states like California to do any amelioration that is possible. All right. Lots more to talk about there as well, but we only have a couple minutes left. So we move to our final Five words or fewer feature on Talking Feds. And today we have a question from Eleanor Walsh, who asks, what is the most beautiful spot in California and why? Congresswoman Bass? The most beautiful spot in California to me is our coastline, the Pacific Ocean. So many places up and down the state. There you have it. All right. Okay. Senator Didi, any thoughts? Argue with the Pacific Ocean, but I would, it's hard to narrow it down to, to just one, but I would say it's hard to be Big Sur. It has all of the drama and all of the beauty and, and all of the excitement that the California coast provides. So, so you could just say hard to beat Big Sur. You could take that it's <laughs> off and you'd be <laughs> hard to beat Big Sur. Five there words. you go. Senator? Uh, I got four words for you. The San Fernando Valley. Uh, well, first of all, like it's home and there's no place like home. But uh, for all the beautiful attributes of the state of California, hey, it's a short drive to the coastline. I love the Pacific Ocean as well. You can be in the beach not too far away, it's not too far into the Central Valley. Yosemite, a lot more accessible yeah. than a lot of people realize. Love them, the Sierras, love uh, our national parks, love our beaches. And hey, home for me is less than a 30 minute drive from Dodger Stadium. So perfectly it's positioned. So California is so Fernando amazing Valley. that way. Yeah, we were just in Yosemite. I thought about Joshua Tree, but I guess I'm one of these coastal elites because I'm going 
PCH, constantly changing, constantly unchanging. That is all the time we have. Thank you very much to Dee Dee Myers, Congresswoman Karen Bass, and Senator Alex Padilla for a great California-centric discussion. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't just outtakes or ad-free episodes, though we do have them there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts on breaking news and other topics. Just in the last few days, we posted discussions with state senator and leader of the Democratic Senate Caucus, Carol Alvarado of Michigan, about the travails of the Texas struggles over Governor Abbott's proposed repressive voting rights legislation. BuzzFeed Zoe Tillman on the interplay between the January 6th DOJ investigation and the House Select Committee investigation. And New York Times Department of Justice reporter Katie Benner on two important department decisions. The first, not to defend Mo Brooks in the Swalwell lawsuit. The second, to determine that executive privilege is not applicable for the discussions that Trump and others had between the election and January 6th aimed at overturning the results. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we have and then decide if you would like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Editors Dustin Nouse and Matt McArdle. Research assistance by Abby Meyer. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude is always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.